right, everybody, welcome back to Farmer Jam Radio. A couple of weeks ago, y'all might remember that it was fruit tree planting season, and we were very excited to give away 174 fruit trees to about 25 farmers across the state of Georgia. That is what Farmer's Jam does, ladies and gentlemen. We took sales uh, from our jam in 2021, raised a little bit more at our events, and uh, give away fruit trees to local farms because that is how we keep the circle of jam alive. So today, you're gonna meet one of the farmers who actually received some of those trees. His name is Slim, his farm is FTP Farms, and I actually met him when he was involved with a band called I Want Whiskey years ago. So this conversation is a bit about uh, his music history, but it's a lot about sort of his philosophy of farming and the way that he uh, participates in political engagement and community development and uh, is very, very big on the type of species that he selects for his farm. He has an ox-powered farm, so we get into that. No tractors, no carbon uh, or oil-based tractors, anything like that on the farm. It's really, really interesting. I'm super excited we got to sit down and chat for quite a while. Um, And before we actually get into the conversation, We've got a track for you uh, from I Want Whiskey called We Have Fed You All for a Thousand Years. Not necessarily an original I Want Whiskey, but certainly performed very well. And I think both the song and the vibe give you a perfect insight to who Slim is. So with that being said, I'm going to let the track take you away. We'll catch you back on the other side with our full interview. This is Farmer's Jam Radio. Keep it locked. Enjoyed that song from one of my favorite local bands, I Want Whiskey. And uh, 
Excited to be joined here today by a farmer who I've known for quite a while and was excited to be able to deliver some fruit trees to this year. Uh, his name is Cullen. He goes by Slim. He runs FTP Farms. Slim, welcome to Farmer's Jam Radio. What's up, James? Glad to be here. Yes, we are here on my front porch. Uh, Slim is actually about to pick up his fruit trees. Um, why don't we actually just start there really quick? You're, you're getting um, a Yates mm-hmm. apple. You've mm-hmm. got a black Arkansas. Uh, five Bell of Georgia peaches. Mm-hmm. Is that it? Was there one more? I think that might have been it. Um, I think that's it. Two, four, six. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And those are all. Uh, well, why don't we? Can you explain to everyone because I think it'll give good context for you know your farming principles why you chose those varieties. Right. Uh, so Feed the People Farms, uh, part of the mission is to preserve heirloom and heritage foods. Um, also folkways, um, so connecting to roots through our food and how we grow them, basically. Um, I selected these because they were the heirloom varieties that uh, were available um, I had heard of Arkansas Black and eaten it before. I enjoy it. Some people are weird about how it tastes or the texture, but um, what's what's different about the texture that people might find? <sighs> I want to be careful here because in a few years I'm going to be trying to market these things. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it can be a little too for apple connoisseurs. They're probably they know about these kind of things. It can be a little too on the chalky kind of side. I think. Okay. And um, I think this is more common in some of the older varieties as a whole. The skin is a little thicker than what people are used to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think with with heirloom in general, you can you can, you get you get into the like you know looks weird place for a lot of people, mm-hmm. and that right there is 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 kind of a no go. So the Arkansas black is is not something people will see in a grocery store. Typically, no, uh, not yet, at least. Um, there are some heirloom foods that you wouldn't even think would be that are in grocery stores, or at least open pollinated. Um, some of the squashes, but um, and tomatoes are there now. Um, yes, tomatoes. Yeah. But um, yeah, the Arkansas black is small. Uh, it's not black, but it is much darker than any red apple that you'd f- be familiar with, um, and. Um, I'm not going to, I don't know what type, it might not even be a typically like eating type, but it's palatable enough that some people eat it straight off the tree. I'm not going to, I'm not as familiar with the different types. There's cider apples out there that you'd never Mm. just bite out of because they don't, they don't really taste that great. Right. Um, And so a lot of the heirloom varieties fall into some of those categories. So you never really even hear about them. Because it's not, they're not sold fresh. They're processed to put into ciders or vinegars or stuff like that. Mm. Um, but I'm excited about Arkansas Black and Yates because those are both still in the eating varieties, you know, the, the snack varieties. Um, and Yates, I believe, is its origins are from Georgia. Um, oh, cool. I might be wrong about that, but. Um. 
And then we wanted to quickly shout out the uh, Slow Food Arc of Taste. Our good friend Peter Morich over at Slow Food uh, found out we, we, we you know found out we were uh, supporting you and knew about your mission of. Uh, working with native species. So the bell of Georgia is a native peach to Georgia. Um, it's on what Slow Food calls the arc of taste because it's kind of um, like for ex- species that are going extinct. So um, this is not a, similar to what you were just saying about the apples. This isn't necessarily the peach tree that you're going to see all the peaches come from. Um, and uh, so, yeah, you're, you're, and so, so Slow Food uh, decided to get in on our purchase and they added an additional four peaches so you're heading home with a total of five bell peaches yeah uh very grateful for uh peter catching that and and for them for the local chapter uh just for them being around and and uh wanting to help out with that mission we share that uh we share that mission to preserve these um these heirlooms and heritage varieties uh a lot you know um I hope I'm not overstepping any boundaries, but I'd want to make a quick note about just the use of the term native because it is oh, thrown sure. around a lot. Um, and uh, I just want to, I do want to clarify because I, I am growing some native, truly native fruits, which the peach was introduced to North America. But if you say a native variety, that's typically just the variety is from this region. So yeah, the Bell of Georgia peach originated in Georgia. It was a lot of these varieties were the standard for the locale from which they originated. People were connected to their place through their food, which is something we don't really have anymore uh, as broadly. So a lot of these varieties, they were once very abundant, very easy to find because that's where your food was coming from close by. Um, and so a lot of these varieties like Yates and Bill of Georgia, um, they were really common here, even in the beginning of the 20th century, you know, before a lot of the mass refrigeration and import-export agriculture started to really dominate the markets. And so because of the expansion of the commercial agriculture, a lot of these varieties now are really hard to find or or gone forever, unfortunately. Right. Um, but we do have groups like Slow Food, Arc of Taste, who understand that connection, not just the fact that these foods, it's a, a little-known secret, hopefully more wide-known secret, that they just taste better. Right. <laughs> yeah. These things, they taste, they taste like food. Um, and so um, we're excited to be, to be part of that movement, yeah. Yes, <laughs> and I'm thinking... Um, sort of in contrast, direct contrast to what you're talking about is a tree that most people probably have heard of, which is the Bradford pear, which uh-huh. is a tree that we've planted aggressively throughout the south, uh, southeast and Midwest, I believe. Um, it is, it, you know, does not produce fruit um, and it, it can essentially take over landscapes and prevent other species from growing. And that starts to have impacts all the way down the food chain because now there's less food for birds. Um, the, the limbs aren't suitable for building certain kind of nests. It's, a, it's like it's a total pest of a tree versus something like, you know, an Arkansas black, like you're saying, that may not be the greatest thing you've ever picked off a tree. But... 
it provides for all of the other species that actually live here and may not, you know, may provide in other ways too. Like you mentioned ciders and other value-added processing, you know, again, shameless plug for jam. You know, this is a great way of taking some of these fruits that don't look the best or might be going slightly bad and preserving it and, and making it something that you can really enjoy and you know preservation in general whether that's pickling or Mm -hmm. um, salting you know a lot of these food ways that have kind of been lost and i think that that probably in some way is connected to the fact that we've lost touch with these species and these these trees that that used to be around us we've replaced them with these useless bradford pears yep uh, it's funny you mentioned the Bradford pears because they will take um, a cultivar graft. They will, yes. <laughs> so any of you, uh, well, I'm not going to go into Well, no, that, our, our friends at, <laughs> at Concrete Jungle last year, we embarked on a plan to, uh, I think they grafted something like 200 branches onto, uh, it was crab apples and Bradford pears. Oh, mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, they, they hit some pear stock and apple stock. I have to check back in with Concrete Jungle and see how that went, if, if any of them took. But, um yeah, you you can turn it into a more useful tree, but um, it's not the best rootstock because you mentioned it's a pretty weak tree. Um, yeah, it, people line driveways with them as a landscaping feature. I'm just like you just that's dangerous. Right, <laughs> these limbs, they're not very good. Uh, once they get you know, probably I'm guessing 20 years old, they just start dropping limbs. Yeah, it's not a good tree. There are a lot of efforts to try to remove them now, um, which will probably be a, a never-ending project um, at this point, just given how many have, have been planted. But um, we're here to talk about the the trees we're planting. Yes, not so <laughs> yeah. opportunistic and invasive in the landscape. Right. Or not at all, actually. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so real quick, just on the subject of your farm, um, can you let people know where they can you know, come uh, support you and, and learn more about your produce and stuff like that? Um, yeah, sure. Um, you can come, well, there's a couple different ways. Um, the easiest thing right now, since it's winter, is to uh, head over to ftpfarms.com, check out um, the foods we grow and the way we grow them. And if you're interested in supporting that mission, we still have CSA shares available. Um, we're also intermittently through the winter time. We're at uh, Avondale Estates farmer's market we'll start being there every sunday uh in march but um was just there today um got some eggs sold and um that's a good place to come yeah learn more and support us yeah some nice farms over there that's on sundays right yeah sundays 10 to 1 sundays avondale estates my parents basement is in the parking lot okay okay cool um and um, so just uh, I kind of wanted to go back and kind of share a bit more about how, you know, we met and um, because it was actually through music. Um, our friend who we were just chatting about, Mary Elaine, uh, joined a band. Uh, Mary Elaine worked with um, my wife, my I guess my partner at the time. I don't know. I can't remember the timeline exactly. It was several <laughs> years ago, at least five or six years ago. Yeah. Um, and... Um, yeah, the band was I Want Whiskey. She was a fiddle player. You play... Well, let's start there. What are all the instruments that you play? Because I don't think... I, I can name for sure four. So, yeah, I, I'm a bit of an instru- multi-instrumentalist, although I actively um, mostly just sing and play harmonica. I can 
play guitar well enough to accompany those things on my own. Um, you know, sort of like a Frank Edwards or maybe more familiar Bob Bob Dylan type setup. Uh, but I am, I can know my way around a keyboard, so I play accordion uh, a little bit, and um, the drums. I've been playing. Oh, I've been playing drums since I think '96, so most of my life I've been playing drums. Oh wow! <laughs> um, I don't really play country music with drums. Uh, the area I found the most fun was punk. So I've been in several punk bands in Atlanta throughout the years, um, behind the skins. Um, but in country music is uh, that's where I I'll sing. You know, country and bluegrass, and play harmonica uh, through with that stuff. Um, I also play the didgeridoo. Oh, okay. <laughs> Which is a fun one to throw out there. People are usually caught off guard with that. Yeah, um, definitely caught off guard. Yeah, but mostly just singing harmonica. Yes, yes. Uh, and you actually participated in the first ever Farmers Jam mm-hmm. with your harmonica. That was and, great and fun. The vocals, yeah. That that, that was. The, 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 you know, as the first anything sometimes can be, it was like so much the essence of a jam because mm-hmm. y'all had never played together before. I think at least some of y'all had never met. And uh, I remember there was borrowing of instruments and then, uh, yeah, it was it was chaotic, but it all came together. And that's exactly what I think about when I think of a jam. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody, you just get into the groove, you know, everybody knows. Yeah knows what to do and it's nice because you don't you can participate you know exactly how you feel you mm-hmm. don't you know, no one's asking you to carry anything mm-hmm. you know you can you can pass the baton pretty much at any time mm-hmm. if you just want to hang out in the background you can do that too um so yeah <laughs> it was just uh that was a lot of fun but I, i'm curious about you know the intersection of music and food and i guess from my perspective and it may not have been this way you know when did music become when did the transition kind of occur from music being a more prominent part of your life to to growing food it all really centers around my Appalachian heritage Mm. um I got you know I started playing country music you know I was when I was getting into music and wanted to play it I was a drummer and I wanted to you know I wanted to play in a punk band or maybe a reggae band I was like a little mod kid (laughs) you know but uh I just started to learn more about, you know, my family history, and I love going to Appalachia. Um, my dad and I would go hiking in uh, the Nantahala Forest uh, many, multiple times a year when I was growing up, and my grandfather uh, retired up into uh, Franklin, North Carolina, Colossasia, so we were up there a lot. My grandfather's from that region going back. Oh, we don't really even know. <laughs> mm. Some of the branches of the family just dead end up there. Um, mm. So I think it was centered around that. Um, you know, I, I'm i involved in some political activism. And um, in the second Obama administration, I kind of just realized that self-sufficiency is going to be very important for individuals and communities moving forward um, and that needs to be more of a a focus for for activism and um, it's kind of cool seeing how 
it seems like everybody else is on the same page. <laughs> wow, yeah. Um, or I at mean, least I found a community in Atlanta that was really on board with growing food and at least getting more of the city to grow its own food. Right. Um, and, and ventures like that. And real quick, I will say that that has definitely been going on for a while, but I think yeah. the general public kind of getting on board came when <laughs> everyone saw those empty shelves. And you realize... Oh, this all the time when they've been saying like, well, you'll never get this in America. It happened mm -hmm. and it, it's still happening. You know, even today there's things missing from my Publix because of supply chain issues. The, yeah. the jam business we're building is impacted by the lack of jars that exist. So, you know, it's, it's, it's yep. going to be a problem we're feeling for a long time. Yeah, I don't think it's going to end in our lifetime. It's, I don't want to be pessimistic because whether or not it gets worse is up to us. If we sit around and don't do anything – it's going to get worse. Yeah. But if we get active in the solutions for the future, it's going to get – it might get worse <laughs> at first. But we have to create our own safety nets essentially. And um, yeah. And I was very familiar with musical traditions uh, generally of the South and, and Appalachia country and blues specifically. But, you know – I picked up a Foxfire book and started learning more about really I started learning more about foraging first mm -hmm. and what you could find as far as food goes um, without having to plant anything. <laughs> yes, yes, um, yes. But uh, the state that our wilderness is in, you can't really get all you need from foraging. Um, at least in a communal sense, you'll be fighting over it. <laughs> well, right. So I came at it from how do we grow our own food and kind of re-knit ourselves back into those systems that we can forage and hunt in. And that's when I discovered permaculture, um, but it's probably better described as agroecology. You know, this um, not separating agriculture and ecology anymore and bringing them back right. together yes. Developing systems like silvopasture and alley cropping and stuff like that, and learning that those were ancient practices that we have lost or given up on, and um, that's kind of where it took me learning more about those more older practices of agriculture and regenerative agriculture and um, land-based life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Foxfire, the the book series, that was pretty instrumental in in was that like I mean would you is it fair to say it's a, it was a life changing book series for you? And can you tell people a bit more about what what it is and what's in there too? Yeah, so Foxfire is uh, it's a uh, it it's hard to say what it is. It's a museum. <laughs> it's a, a non it's a nonprofit in mm. Mountain City, Georgia, which is in Raven County up in uh, the Blue Ridge Mountains of Georgia, Northeast Georgia. They work primarily with high school students at Raven County High School. They have an education outlook kind of to everything they do. So they get youth interested in Appalachian heritage. Um, there is a lot of immigrant youth up there, um, but uh, they work with all the students. Um, so there's... There's immigrant kids working with Appalachian kids, learning about the practices that are related to that land. Hmm. You know, so the Appalachian Scotch, 
had to learn a lot when we got here. We had to learn everything almost from the Cherokee. So there's a lot of like, um, you, you know, there were African populations that made their way into Appalachia and they're still there. Um, and so all this knowledge is kind of living. And that's what Foxfire is about is like keeping this, these traditions alive mm. through this education program where students get to pick what they want to learn about and shape their own education. Um, and they also put out a quarterly magazine and they have this 12 book, 12 volume book series, um, that, uh, the whole project started in 1966, um, with just the magazine. And a few years later they started putting out books, um, so the book series is very static. They have a podcast where they they interview people and they release things from their archives because uh, the books are really just the tip of the iceberg. Mm. Uh, they have that's what I'm realizing in this conversation. Yeah, they have thousands of hours of archival interviews that they haven't released yet. They're slowly oh, wow. going through them and editing them and trying to clean them up because mm-hmm. a lot of them were recorded in the '70s. Sure. Um. Anyway, yeah. That's yeah. Boxfire. <laughs> right. Yes. In a nutshell. Okay. Wow. So, but how how did how did you how did you come across Foxfire? I mean, what was happening in your life at that time? Well, uh, I knew about it. My aunt and uncles kind of knew about it in their periphery. Um, it was kind of there, and I wanted. I mean, I was looking for a book that kind of had a little bit of everything: gardening, hunting fishing, you know, and Foxfire won their, their, the first book in that 12 book volumes is that book. I mean, it goes, the first chapter is about tools and all the tools you need to work with wood and they're all hand tools. And then it tells you how to build a log cabin. That is the second chapter. And then the next chapter, the next couple chapters are like pieces of furniture and there's gardening and quilt making and hunting and the last chapter is on like moonshining <laughs> uh, or it might not be the last chapter, but they get more and more complex. Sure. You know, yeah. about like, it's cool. They build on skills. Yes. Um, and the books are written in kind of interview style. Cause they're all based on interviews that high school, that youth did with old timers back in the sixties. And so they're written in vernacular a lot of times. So you can read and hear these people talk, mm. which, um, you know, I think is really important. Uh, there are dialects too that are, um, really important, but, uh, it, um, yeah, it got me started basically like, Oh, here's, a, here's a really simple way to look at gardening. Um, you know, when to plant all that kind of thing. Um, and then I started ordering other books that went into more detail. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just use it as a framework to build my particular path. You yeah. Know? Um, because not everybody's Appalachian, you know what I mean? And not everybody lives in the vicinity of the region that could be called Appalachia. So it's like, a, you know, find, find books or information and knowledge about your local regional landscape that, you, you know, it's going to make your life way easier. Right. In the future. And that was sort of where I was coming from. Um, mm. I was lucky enough to live in the region that I was from. Not everyone's True. that yeah. lucky. Um, and so to me, it was not just discovering what's around me, but also like a piece of my past, a piece of my, my ancestral like uh, connection, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. So at some point between where you are now and and then you were working at and with the Covenant House. Yes. How long how long did you work there and and um you know, can you just describe what your role was and, and, and a little bit about Covenant House in general, too? So, yeah, I was working for um, the uh, the legendary Mario Cambardella with his land, landscaping company. Um, when I had been gardening for a, a few years, um, when he came to me and said, you know, uh, I got this idea and opportunity that you might be into, uh, Covenant House. Um, we had worked, like, some of the youth at Covenant House um, were on his landscaping crews. Um, so I was familiar with what it was. Um, it basically a uh, campus and nonprofit uh, for at-risk youth. Um, so they have a 90-day shelter um, with like bunk bed style, small rooms. Um, where they work with kids to try to get them to their nearest relative or stuff like that. They also have more permanent programs, transitional programs, um, where you can get a job and live in the cottage and pay uh, a certain percentage of uh, utilities there. And, you know, they take the kids grocery shopping every week. Um, and then they have educational programs on campus. They have like a school building and, uh, and uh, learning gardens. And, and this greenhouse that had kind of, it wasn't in poor condition, but it needed a little repair and it could, it was fairly large, you know, it had thousands of plant capacity. So um, I worked with Mario and them to develop this program that uh, the youth there got to choose the name and they ended up choosing Hug, which was Help Us Grow. So with that program, we started, um, you know, when Mario came to me and he said, he, you know, the emphasis is going to be on heirlooms, you know, um, and... Um, growing vegetables, you know, doing it organically. Um, so through several different grants and in-kind grants, we were able to get the resources together um, and start this program where the youth would get uh, education on how to start vegetables in the greenhouse in a nursery kind of uh, scenario, how to plant them and care for them uh, to get a harvest Um uh, and continual harvest, we were working with vegetables, obviously. So continual harvest, they had some fruit trees. Um, that some of them we relocated uh, so that they could get more uh, sun while we could also have more space for vegetables. Um, I, throughout the two years that I worked there, we started. I started teaching the youth about fruit tree guilds and planting, uh, designing plant communities so that they understand that, you know, monocropping is not an avenue that you want to venture down. <laughs> you want to have a multi multitude of species in your gardens, um, multitude of trees, vegetables, you know, things for wildlife, things for pollinators, um, uh, things that are going to uh, replenish the soils, you know, deep-rooted ground covers like comfrey and stuff. Um, it was it was a great gig. Uh, the The gardens really started to pop. Um, I was kind of blown away too because I was pretty new to the permaculture, the whole permaculture thing. Like I had done vegetable gardens, but uh, when I started to see the response of the soil and the ecosystems to piecing more plants, more biodiversity, um, 
I think it really left an impression. <laughs> yeah, well, it left clearly. an impression on me. Um, but a lot of the surplus seedlings, because of a grant from the city, went out to every. It was fourteen fire stations had vegetable gardens oh, right. for the communities, and then any community garden that was on the west side. So outside of the fire station gardens, any west side community gardens would also get free plants. Um, and it was kind of the situation of like, either you tell me your square footage or I can come out and measure it. Um, and we get you the plants to fill up your beds. So, um, gangsters to growers got, um, a lot of plants from us. Mm. Um, if I ever, I I always give them my extras still. Um, nice. Yeah. That's um, a great organization. Yeah, certainly. Um, West side, uh, historical gardens, um, I can't remember. There were so many. JR, uh, the Joy and Reflect Gardens, he got seedlings from us. Um, so there, it was a pretty cool program. All right. Uh, had a little technical difficulties there. Um, we were chatting about your time at Covenant House, remembering some of the gardens who you helped support with that program. Mm -hmm. um, I can't remember exactly where we left off. Well, basically, um, the second year of that program, uh, they wanted to scale up a little bit. And um, one of the properties that they had weren't using in Lakewood, uh, we built like a oh, right. something you yes. could call a farm. Um, you know, we were cultivating about half, maybe, uh, and I don't even know, 2,000 square feet. It wasn't much. Um, but, you know, your raised bed uh, style gardening in the in the ground, and um, thankfully the ground didn't have any horrible toxins in it, so we just went straight in the ground and uh, um, the produce that was grown there. So this site gave opportunities for the youth to come see something that was a little bit a larger scale than just a home garden, um, a scale that you could work with and make income on. So um, just showing them techniques. Uh, like double digging and how to use the stirrup hose and the hose uh, for weeding, um, mulching, and harvesting. Um, you know, so we had a, um, uh, a catering company, uh, Carlisle's, partner with us. Uh, and so they agreed to purchase the produce that we grew from that. Oh, cool. And so, yeah, I went, um, and they're a corporate catering company. So a lot of, a lot of people got to eat this food. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, some of the things they did with with the radishes in particular really impressed me. They were, they were like, I was like, wow, man, I didn't even know you could do that much. <laughs> we, we were just like, here's something for your salads. And they were like, oh, purees and oh, radish chips, like potato chips, you know, like, yeah. oh my gosh, man. Wonderful, um, that's yeah. awesome. So that was cool. Um, and that kind of got me uh, in the direction of produce farming. I, I went... And started doing it on my own after that, um, and uh, that's the main crop that I still do. Um, but uh, radishes? No, vegetables. Oh, just in general. So, yeah, in, it, yeah, in general, yeah. That the vegetables. I have poultry too, um, but uh, right. yes. yeah, yeah, and uh, everything. Um, I, I wanted to try to figure out a way to not have any fossil fuel inputs at least into the production yes i was about to i was about to bring that up because so now out in your farm it's in Carrollton. yeah it's in uh, carroll county it's K 
Carrollton, yeah. Carrollton area-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I was going to bring up, it's it's ox-powered. So yeah. you, you did a, a GoFundMe at one point, right, to kick that off? And- yeah. Um, it never even really occurred to me um, that oxen is even a thing. <laughs> even though, like, you know, grow up and you're like, oh, the ox. Like, you, yeah, you know yeah. what ox is. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then it's like, wait. Yeah, you can farm with these animals. Yeah. Uh, not only can you, but like a lot of people used to in the United States and worldwide, uh, that is the number one draft animal if you look globally. Oh, wow. Is the ox. Yeah. Hmm. So uh, most food, if you're, if, if the most food grown by draft animals is, is going to be an ox power uh, worldwide. But um, I, it clicked in my head when I was listening to Farmer to Farmer podcast. Hmm. Um, which uh, they had a guy work, working in oxen. I was trying to get a sense of which dra- like what it was like to work with horses and draft animals and stuff like that uh, because doing it by hand, you know, I was using the wheel hoe, um, which really does, I mean, that counts for something. Those, those really can, they're great tools. Um, but looking f- into the future uh, is going to have to be horses, I figured. And so I was trying to learn, and there weren't many resources, especially here in the south. Uh, up in New England, there's a lot more draft animal power, but down here, it's not something you see hmm. anymore. Um, and horses, people ride them, you know, but there aren't farms that use them for uh, cultivation. Um, so I just wanted to learn what that was about. And here's this guy out in California, like oxen, what the hell? And he starts talking about how how much easier they are than horses, how much cheaper they are, equipment and um, the animal itself. And uh, I just was like more intrigued and more intrigued. And so, yeah, I did. Um, I found this Tillers International up in Michigan. They go all over the world teaching farmers that are working by hand still. Uh, because another statistic I learned from them is that globally, acreage-wise. There are more, most acres, most acres worldwide of farmland is worked by hand still Mm. to this day. So what they do is they go around worldwide um, to places that don't have capital for tractors, Mm -hmm. but they got cattle everywhere. Right. Um, So they teach them, you know, how to select teams and how to train them from a young age. So that it's very low stress for the teamster and the cattle. Um, they do really awesome work worldwide, but they have a school in uh, Scotts, Michigan, outside of Kalamazoo, where if you can go there, they'll teach you. And so all these living history museums all over the country, they go there to learn how to work with horses oh. and oxen and do blacksmithing. They do everything mm-hmm. there like that um, at Tillers. They teach you, I mean, yeah, they have coopering, <laughs> you know, like crazy things. Um so I went up there with some stimulus money <laughs> and learned how to drive oxen. <laughs> wow. Love that. And I uh, came back here and was like, all right, I need it. And the, the cool thing with oxen is that they really don't require much capital to get started. Mm. So I did a little $2,000 GoFundMe. Yeah. Um, I think I hit the goal in like four days. Nice. Um, and yeah, I went and got a pair of Piney Woods ox. Um and started training them, uh, you know, started learning, making yoke, making the ox yoke from a fallen tree that 
you know, thankfully had fallen, you know, I thank the Lord that that tree was there <laughs> to make the yoke. Um, right. It's, yeah. It's, it's been uh, a good adventure. And uh, I've been told by other experienced Teamsters that uh, I'm coming along pretty well. They're, they're good. They're good oxen. Yeah. Great. What was the, what was like the most, I mean, what was the process like of getting to know those animals? And so I'm not unfamiliar with cattle, but uh, I'm not familiar enough to like go up, just straight up walk up to a cow. Mm -hmm. You know, that wasn't me at that time. Um, now my other job, I work with cattle uh, on a daily basis, but a couple years ago I was working at a vegetable farm. I had chickens and there are some neighbors that keep cattle on the, on the farm that I'm at. So I, I was around them. They were cool animals, but the cattle that were around me, like you get too close and they just, they run away. Get skittish. Yeah. They, yeah, they get skittish or, or they, they go away. So I'm like, well, you know, um, and that's exactly what my team, my pair did mm. when I first got them. Actually, it took a couple of days. They, they, Got out of the paddock. I put them in immediately um, <laughs> because the is an electric fence and it, it was turned off. So they just <sighs> went right through it um, and just went out and hung out with the other cattle um, until we got the um, um, got the fence on. And I found them the next day and we put them in the pasture I had fenced off for them. And it was like basically just. Being really calm, you go out there. They don't really want to be near you, mm -hmm. um, but you get as close as you can before they start running away. And you just hang out and you slowly, you get close enough where you can scratch them with a long stick, and then they start to learn that oh, this guy. I had some sweet feed that helped. Um, yeah. I don't feed them sweet feed anymore. That was just to get them to trust me, uh, but this. They really respond to praise and being scratched, especially in sweet spots like that they can't reach with their horns, especially like mm. their brisket or scratching their uh, their butt right right next to their tail or yeah um, or belly rubs. You know, they, you find the sweet spots and you can you can really start to communicate with them. Sure. Um, and training them. It's all about the body position. I could go on for hours. <laughs> yeah, but, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Getting to know them and, and getting getting them to understand that they can trust you. Um, I think I got them at an opportune time, which was right at the tail end of the fall. So I had to feed them hay every morning because mm -hmm. the grass doesn't grow fast enough in the winter for there to be enough. They um, and so you know every morning I gave them hay. No, that forged that relationship. Yeah, yeah. It really created a bond that I'm still working on. Um, you know, it takes years to train, uh, you know, a full ox. Um, so, you know, technically these are still like working steers is what, you know, mm. um, but some of the sticklers might say that, but, um, I, uh, you know, I do work, I started working with them the first year that I had them, um, just pulling logs out, pulling, uh, cover crop residue out of the fields or, you know, um, conditioning them to pull heavier and heavier things. And now they pull the chicken shelters in the pasture. I move the chickens every day and there's two shelters they got to move. Um, hopefully three soon. Um, so they moved, they helped me do that. Um, 
Uh, they help harrow the fields because I don't do any plowing. So they help harrow the fields, um, still training them on straight lines so that we can cultivate weeds. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, it's it's kind of amazing how nimble that they are, you know. <laughs> yeah. If you watched experienced Teamsters work with very well-trained te- oxen, it's like they're doing ballet. It's crazy. Wow. It's really cool. It's really cool. <laughs> yeah, that is that is really cool. Um, well, I think um, we will leave it there for now. Sure. Um, and uh, yeah, just uh, um, you know, find your you know everything that you're doing. I, I think I see a lot of that in what I'm trying to do with Farmers Jam, and you know, stay as like true and authentic to a code as possible. And so it was great that you know we were able to support you with some trees and. Um. Yeah. Thank you for for joining us today. Thank you for all the the hard work that you've been doing. And I think we're gonna play a little uh, snippet of another track here in just a second. But is there anything else you wanted to uh, leave the people with before we go? Uh. Yeah. Just don't hesitate. Get out there and do it. If you want to grow some food, do it. <laughs> all right. With that being said, I'll catch you on the other side. Enjoy this track. And we'll see you soon on Farmer's Jam Radio. All right, everybody, hope you all enjoyed meeting my friend Slim from FTP Farms and I Want Whiskey. That last little snippet was watching the world turn round. As always, Farmer's Jam Radio was created by Longleaf Media, hosted by myself and produced by Cam Christian with music by Nomad. Check out the full world of Farmer's Jam at www.thefarmersjam.com. We got some big announcements coming up, y'all, because it is jam season. It's rapidly approaching. Spring is here early, so we got some news coming down the way. Be sure you sign up for our newsletter so you can stay fully plugged in. That's all we got for today. Been great hanging out with you. Y'all be safe out there and jam on. I saw Johnny come marching home in the sweet by and by. Won't you play us a song on that fiddle? Cause we don't care what mama don't allow. Singing 40 days, 40 women, watching the world turn around. 40 days, 40 women, watching the world turn around. 40 days and 40 women, watching the world turn around.